Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Sir Charles Schultz III. Sir Charles, we're talking about fossils on Mars. What do you think actually Mars might have had there? What kind of life? Well, everything that I found was a trace of a marine fossil. So anything that lived on the planet would probably have lived in an ocean, in the water. And the reason for that is very simple. With an atmosphere as thin as that, things could still survive in an atmosphere of water, just as anything can, uh, can survive in a thicker atmosphere you can breathe. If you've got nothing on the outside to speak of in terms of air pressure, and water is still present, gases can dissolve in the water. The experiments showing this have been done at the Houston uh, Johnson Space Flight Center years ago. They showed with, with uh, greatly reduced atmospheric pressure, they were able to keep a lot of animals alive very easily. So, you know, this is a proof of principle that nobody seems to consider. And if you look at Mars today, the water is present, but it's almost always in the form of minerals mm-hmm. or of ice under the soil. And that's also been seen. There are fields of glaciers on the planet. The uh, slope streaks, the slope streaks, I'm sorry, where the soil heats up a little from sunlight, the water melts underground, and then runs and flows down the, stro- the slopes. And they've seen this for many years and recently have admitted, yes, that is a sign of water being present. So the very fact that we see present-day erosion, I mean, you can look from one frame to the next from these rovers, and you can see that the soil is changing, then these features that we see that appear to be running water formed must have been formed recently, not millions of years ago, because it would have eroded away by now otherwise. But everything was a marine fossil, and nothing, that's, that's not so hard to believe, I mean. Like fish? Well, like sea urchins, um, trilobites, uh, crinoids, and a number of shells. Very simple marine organisms, nothing complicated. Now, if, you know, as many people have claimed, well, it's a religious issue, they won't say it because of that. That doesn't make any sense. What's the fear from a planet of marine organisms? Right, absolutely. It's silly. And the fact is... And God made everything, as far as I'm concerned. God made everything, exactly. So what gets me is this. I've presented this information in a number of forums, and Coast has certainly been one of them. And I've done television shows, I've done presentations with people, and literally, in every case, the bulk of the people, the majority of the people said, I see it, you know, and they couldn't unsee it once they've seen it. From official channels, uh, people working in colleges and research centers, I've had numerous people send nothing but insults and invective, and NASA won't even, even debate it. I mean, the feeling in my mind is... If you've got something built with the data that you supplied and it looks like a solid case, why would you refuse to even look at it? Exactly. So it makes no sense to me. But the fact is, we stand the possibility when the sample return mission happens of bringing back an organism that we have no resistance to. And this, in my mind, is the single most important message I can give to people. You're bringing back God knows what from a planet that had a lot of life on it in the past and something that we would have absolutely no resistance to. If I can make no other point to people, it is do not bring a sample from Mars to the Earth. You stand the risk of infecting the planet with something we have no defenses against. ETs aside, I think this universe is teeming with all kinds of life. Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, what's the most common life on Earth? Bacteria. Yep. And it's simple. And it can live in conditions that would kill you or I in an instant the most uh, clement places in the universe where people could live are going to be rarer than uh, a vacuum-covered rock with uh, rock-eating bacteria inside it. And that's going to be probably the most common life on Earth, or I'm sorry, not on Earth, 
inside the Earth there certainly is, but uh, on other worlds, we're going to see most of them dominated by bacterial life, and it's going to be environments where complicated life forms couldn't survive. Let's talk about the moon for a second, Sir Charles. Why the interest in the moon? It's a barren place. Why even go there? Okay, there are a number of really good reasons for going to the moon. And one of them is the fact that if you're doing, for instance, radio astronomy, the back side of the moon, the far side of the moon from the Earth, is completely isolated from the radio noise of the Earth. So it's a wonderful, pristine environment for searching for radio signals out of space. Even standard radio astronomy would be amazing from there. The other issue is it's a very easy platform to observe um, conditions on the Earth and in a space around the Earth, and it's loaded with mineral resources, and solar power is, you know, it's always shining. The sunlight is always on in space. If you have satellites around the Earth or around the moon, they can collect sunlight and run power plants for, you know, a fraction of what it takes to burn fossil materials that they call them the... you know, hydrocarbon fuels. Um, going to the moon provides us with an environment where it's low gravity. It's easy to leave the moon. I mean, imagine this. A spacecraft the size of a Volkswagen with about a hat full of fuel has the capacity of getting off the moon and into orbit around it. In an environment like that, which is so much easier to get into space from than it is on the Earth, we would have a lot of advantages if we're going to set up a civilization that uses lunar resources, asteroid resources, and wants to spread out of the solar system. The moon is an excellent place to establish resource and industrial places uh, right there. Who's going to go back to the moon before we do? China? Well, that's hard to say. Uh, There are a number of projects to send people to the moon right now, and Artemis notably is one of the most uh, talked about ones from the NASA standpoint. Uh, The Artemis mission is part of the new Let's see, the Biden administration has set forth a budget proposal for $24.7 billion to NASA uh, this coming year. And part of the funding will cover the Artemis project, which is planned to put the first woman on the moon and the first person of color on the moon. Uh, The Artemis One launch now is scheduled for November. Um, We'll see if that flies. It's had a number of setbacks in times past. Um, But there are commercial companies as well. Um, we're both familiar with um, the fellow who put his own private space stations up a couple of times in the past. You know who I'm talking about? Bigelow? Bigelow himself. He has uh, he bought the patent uh, information and the licensing for making inflatable habitats and has built a module for the International Space Station. He has been working for a number of years on habitat modules for hotels in space and on the moon. And it's quite possible that he might pull something off in cooperation with another group. But I do expect that the first landings back to the moon will be a semi-present, uh, I would say a semi-permanent location of people for doing research and scouting for mineral resources. And it probably will end up, you know, this is just a speculation, it probably will end up near the polar regions where there is uh, water ice shown to exist in the shadowed craters there. That would make a lot of sense because water... Well, if you think about it, foundation of life and the basis of an easy-to-make rocket fuel. Sir Charles, when we were kids, uh, it was exciting to talk about being an astronaut and space and everything else. Are kids getting that kind of flavor anymore? I don't think so. And it's really a shame because we came up in a world where there was so much possibility and there was a great deal of unknown as well. I think that in the world today... One of the problems we face is entertainment is so good 
that it displaces the unknown with fiction so that people don't know to go out and learn about the things we don't really know. Instead, they see a fantasy about it. Yeah, with computer-generated graphics and stuff like that. And I think that one of the biggest problems is parents don't have the sort of, call it leverage in information that they used to in the past. People were really much well, well, much better educated in the past than they are today. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people can't even start a lawnmower anymore. (laughs) Pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, everything around us depends on an extremely high level of technology. And the problem is we use the technology because it's been made so foolproof that you can be technically incompetent and use it. How many people can fix anything anymore? You know, you throw it away and buy a new one. But the educational process has been short-circuited in part by public schools and in part by the fact that most parents don't have the technical expertise, so to speak, that they did in the past. Just look back at some of the uh, magazines that were published for kids in the 60s, 50s and 60s. They had things that had a plan to build a cabin or how to build a motorcycle or how to make right. own. You could make anything. And they had kits, too. They certainly did. Boy, they sold every sort of kit you can imagine. People would build cabins. They'd build oscilloscopes. They'd build uh, superchargers for their car. And, I mean, a lot of times, the 15 to 16-year-old kids with tools in the garage and their dad would go out there and help them. That sort of world just doesn't even exist anymore. And what do we do about it? It's very difficult for people to know where to turn for information, and yet, in their hand, they hold a cell phone, which is literally connected to the library of human achievement. Why have we seemed to have forgotten about Venus as a planet? I think that once people discovered how hellish its environment was, and how difficult it is to get a spacecraft to survive there. It's baked, right? Well, yes. You can't, you can't put anything on the surface that's going to survive for very long. Uh, and the issues are the atmospheric pressure is about 70 times greater than the atmospheric pressure on the Earth. It literally rains a mist of sulfuric acid, and it's about 400 degrees centigrade. Um, <laughs> and there's not even a true day or night there. It stays dimly lit at all times because the light is conducted through the atmosphere almost like a light fiber from front to back. It gets a little dimmer on the backside, but not nighttime. It's, it's such a forbidding environment that even now we have a hard time building hardware that'll last. And it's because we've only recently begun to fabricate power supplies and electronics that will survive those temperatures. And what about beyond Mars? Jupiter, Saturn, are they worth visiting? Now, they actually are. The problem with visiting a place like the moons of Jupiter, which is going to be a fascinating environment to explore, is that Jupiter has this incredibly huge magnetic field. Now, we're often told about the Earth's magnetic field being a shield for radiation striking us from space. And yes, it does that. But there's another thing that happens when you have a magnetic field of that magnitude, particularly of Jupiter's. It traps particles of radiation and they circle the planet like a cyclotron. It creates an immense radiation belt, like our Van Allen belts around the Earth. So if you were to stand on the surface of one of the moons of Jupiter, even in a spacesuit, you know, where you could survive the pressures and temperatures, you'd be killed by the radiation in just a few hours. Or oh, jeez. It, it would be scouring through every cell of your body and destroying all your genetic material and wrecking the mechanisms that keep the cells alive. So you'd probably need about three feet of lead to shield you if you were to stand on the surface of, let's say, Ganymede. And that's not very practical. 
if you look at the missions that they're sending, they try to send things with well-shielded electronics, and mm-hmm. they also don't expect it to last very long. One of the reasons that the orbiters for Jupiter and Saturn stay basically far away from the planet and explore a lot of the stuff by telescope is to increase the lifespan of the spacecraft because the radiation destroys the microchips. Wipes it out. Yeah, well, one of the jobs I did uh, years ago in defense, I was working with a group called the Nuclear Design and Test Lab for a couple of years on some projects, and we explored the effects of ionizing and non-ionizing radiation on microchips. And so I, I designed test fixturing, wrote a lot of uh, test programs for microchips. And it was a joint venture between Intel and Martin Marietta, which is now Lockheed Martin. And we looked at how radiation would destroy some chips outright, but some of them had a degree of recovery. And we learned a lot about how uh, radiation can damage a chip. We also discovered one of the most interesting things. Um, Military-grade chips are in a case made of ceramic called CERMET, which means ceramic to metal. These chips, as it happened, had higher failures from internal radiation because the ceramic itself contained radioisotopes that they didn't expect. And so you couldn't really have reliable high-density memory chips made out of CERMET and be military certified because the ceramic case itself would cause memory failures. They had to do error correction and a lot of other things to make it work. But we've learned a lot since then, and maybe we can make spacecraft robust enough to stand higher radiation levels now. If you were in charge of the space program, what would you be doing right now? Oh, wow. You know... And you had a blank check. I would immediately go into two things. Number one, let's put some power stations in orbit to start beaming power collected from sunlight down to receivers on the ground. Immediately, we could cut out a lot of the, um, well, hydrocarbon burning. burning Like huge, huge capacitors that would beam power down to us? Well, they wouldn't be capacitors. There are a couple of methods explored. One of them is to use a, a certain frequency of infrared laser light that would pass through the atmosphere easily, and it would be diffuse enough that it wouldn't harm anything in its path. Uh, the other was to use microwaves to couple the antennas in space down to those on the ground, and receivers on the ground would take the microwave uh, signal and rectify it into DC voltage like a battery current and then turn it into alternating current to put in the grid. Um, And that had a lot of things that we could do very easily. So one of the things I would do immediately is invest right away in orbital power systems. And the other would be to get some factories in orbit that could manufacture stuff from off-planet resources because we need two things to happen. We need to build a place to go. A lot of people uh, have realized we don't do a lot of space travel with humans because there's nowhere to go. You have to send an environment That's right. in order to have a place to survive. With robotic manufacturing, imagine really sophisticated 3D printers that can make their source material out of, let's say, lunar material, uh, the dirt on the surface of the moon. Break it down, turn it into um, fuel for these 3D printers, and print a habitat. We know how to make concrete out of lunar materials. We know how to extract the metals. You could actually send robots called von Neumann machines, which are automated factories of a sort that can reproduce themselves. You send them to the moon, you send them to the asteroids, and they set up shop, and they start making factories and turning out sheet metal and plastics and 
all the things you need to make microchips and breathable air and hydroponic gardens, and then you have places to go. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.